Peter, first chapter, thirteenth verse, second Peter chapter one and verse thirteen. And we're going to continue our study there of Second Peter. It's so important uh, <clears throat> in the last days to know how then should we live. And Second Peter 1 is one of those uh, great passages that is talking just about that. So what should we do? Should we sell everything, move to the mountains, get white sheets out and sing, Do Lord, what are we supposed to do? <clears throat> this tells us what we're supposed to do. Go on about what we're doing now, except do it with a greater intensity, with a greater focus. And it's telling us how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to be witnesses in these last days. So Peter, in verse 13, I consider it right as long as I'm in this temporary dwelling, this earthly tent, to stir you up by way of reminder. Now that's what what we saw last week when we got started into the summary. And we're going to pick up uh, on in verse, in uh, point six. Uh, this morning. But before we begin, let's just take a moment for prayer to get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you again for your love and grace and mercy and all your blessings and all your tests. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and meet. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening up your word. I pray we would maximize this time this morning. May the Holy Spirit be our real teacher. May we be able to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, we're at, uh, in uh, verse 6, just a quick review. Peter wants to keep people spiritually awake. Now, we know sometimes it's a difficult thing to stay physically awake during a real boring message or sermon or any of those other things. We know that can be difficult, but the real test here is spiritually awake. In other words, are we in tune with what is going on around us? Do we see what's happening in the world? Are we able to make the (coughs) proper evaluations? Are we able to make the necessary adjustments? So Peter says that his job is to keep people spiritually awake in the times in which they live. And every generation... Uh, has their own set of tests. Uh, I'm not going to go through Revelation 2 and 3 right now, but the letters to the seven churches show that within those different eras of church history that those are there are different tests that face each one, and it's about becoming an overcomer within that test. Our generation, Laodicean generation, is got to do with getting lukewarm about the things of God. That's the big test. Are we going to stay on fire for him or are we going to stay on fire with the world and pursuing the world's thing? So that's our big test. Now, <clears throat> he, Peter says, I'm going to do this for all my life uh, as long as he's in this temporary dwelling. And he's just passing through. Have we come to realize that yet? I know we, we get a house, we, we buy a house, rent a house, we have a dwelling or something like that, and we look at it as kind of our permanent dwelling and, and but is it is this world our permanent dwelling and the answer that's no and we see that with great believers Abraham Abraham knew that he was just passing through this life and that there was a better place there was a better city there was a better country that that God had made and it was going to be perfect and he was uh, okay so I'm uh, <clears throat> the word in the Old Testament's a sojourner I'm just coming through for a period of time, and then I'm moving on. Now, 
We need to first consider that Jesus Christ first considered us. Okay? He knew us. He knew us inside and out. It is amazing to think about omniscience being uh, coupled with, with uh, the humanity of Christ. And uh, it says a couple of places, he knew what was inside every man. That's referring to the sin nature. He knew what the problems were on the inside. He knew how we think, what we think. He knew all that stuff. But he first considered us. And that's what uh, we are told in 1 Timothy 1.12. He said he considered me faithful, Paul, putting me into service. Now, what about things we should consider? Other things we should consider. First of all... <clears throat> The Lord's faithful. And we can, we can easily forget that if things get to going rough in our, uh, in our life. We're facing difficulties and things like that. And sometimes we wonder if he forgot us. Sometimes we wonder if he's listening to our prayers. But then we need to go back, right back to the basics. He's faithful. Even if I'm not, he is faithful. We need to consider the real values of our life. What's really important. What are the priorities that we have? And, and so many times it's when's the next uh, uh, playoff game coming or when is football season start and all those things that we can enjoy, but they shouldn't be our, our obsessions. They shouldn't be what takes first priority in our life. One of the things you don't want to try to do is schedule, schedule a Bible class in the middle of the Super Bowl. Facts of life. We should be, it should be more important to come to a Bible class for sure. But <clears throat> what are the real values? Is the real value fame, fortune, power, and pleasure, the things of the world, or the things of God? Do we have our mindset on the things above? We're to consider that others are more important. Philippians 2.3, are we not supposed to be imitators of our Lord Jesus Christ? The answer to that is yes, we certainly are. Other people are more important. How do we help meet the needs of others is another thing. This is the word that tells us to, to consider. It's not legizomai, which means to logic it out. This is the word hegeomai that means to, to take a good look at, to factor it in, to run it through your, your soul, your analysis center, put the input in, and then evaluate it. Evaluate it. So how about meeting the needs of others? Philippians 2.25 where where Paul writes, I thought it necessary, and that's our word consider, once again. The translators drive me nuts at times with words that can be consistently translated the same way, and they just want to get fancy with them and translate them different ways in different contexts, and they don't add anything to the meaning in the context that they translate them in. It's sometimes it takes away from it because it doesn't get the depth of of the word, the the reality of the word. <clears throat> and here's where we left off. The honor due to those who serve us. From 1 Thessalonians 5. And he says, We request of you, brethren, you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction that you esteem, and that's the word consider. Consider them very highly in love, because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So this is a, you know, is saying that the Lord puts leaders in place. That's who raises up. That's who tears down. And so <clears throat> when we have a leader, then that leader should be esteemed and considered. And 
I've always appreciated this church because we've been here over 30 years and and uh, the people who've been a part of it, from my perception, have considered Helen and I very highly while we have been here. Not saying that we haven't had our disagreements and arguments and stuff like that, but I mean, for the most part, I'm, I, as a pastor, I'm very pleased. I know a lot of church would, churches would love to have that type of response back from the congregation. Now, I've got enough pastor friends, I hear some really wild stories. About, about what comes back. <clears throat> Those who serve us are due honor. They are due respect. And we should be truly uh, thankful for them. They, how to treat others who disobey the Lord. Now this is a, a big thing we need to remember. Because we are all very good at criticism. It's kind of like we all got the doctrine of criticism. Or the, the gift of criticism, didn't it? We can sit and analyze, tear apart, break apart, and do all that other stuff. And sometimes we're doing the same thing that we're criticizing other people for. And that therein is a problem. Now, Second Thessalonians 3, in verse 13, he says, As for you, brethren, don't go weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man. Do not associate with him, so he might be put to shame. Don't regard him as an enemy, though, but admonish him as a brother. See the, the difference there? You don't consider another believer as an enemy. There are times they are. Paul writes about it in Philippians 3. So they are. And he said, I tell you, even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Some people get so deceived and so deluded that although they're believers, they head off in the wrong direction and they start bringing about destructive things. But how do we treat those people? This is this, do not consider him as an enemy. That's what it tells us. We don't go in and say, well, I don't agree with point 1A2B4C3D of the doctrine of. And the next thing you know, that person becomes our enemy. That's not the way that it should be at all. We have a whole lot of things that we agree on. Uh, should agree on as Christians. And so let's rejoice in those things and work on the other things. How do we treat those who to disobey the Lord? And the Bible's just full. It's full of stuff. There are times for separation. Uh, Romans 16 talks about it. There are times that you have to separate, but it's not a first resort. Never was with Jesus. It's not supposed to be with, with Christians. It's not the way it's supposed to be done. How do we treat those who disobey the Lord? Uh, how about respect for those in authority over us? From 1 Timothy 6.1, let all who are under the yoke of slaves regard. That's our word, consider. Consider their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. So this is Paul writing there. Consider their own masters and do we work for somebody? Usually. Sometimes we get old enough we're not working for anybody, but it seems like we're still working for people. But he says, you're working for somebody. Consider them uh, as worthy of respect. Uh, in fact, Colossians 3, other passages, do your work heartily as unto the Lord and not as unto men. Don't do your work just to be noticed by those who have authority over you. Do your work 
is unto the Lord. That's the number one. That's our priority of, of activity. <clears throat> Consider how to not make an issue of money. From 2 Corinthians 9, 5. Paul writes, I thought it necessary, and that's our same word again here. I considered it necessary to urge the brethren to go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Paul's writing the Corinthian church. Corinthian church was a wealthy church. Corinthian church was a messed up church, and one of the areas they were messed up in was giving. You can read it in 1 Corinthians 9. You find it here in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the two longest discussions of grace giving found in the New Testament right there. <clears throat> and he said, okay, Corinth, you made a promise to send along an offering for the Jerusalem saints, giving you a background of that. And he said, when I come, I want the offering already taken up. I don't want to be, I don't want to come and make an issue of money. So what I want you to do is consider it, faithfully give. He will say, set aside some each week, you know, put it in. And that's basically, he gives them instructions. So this is what you need to do. Think about what you're going to do. But he said, one of the things to think about is, is your offering affected by greed? Okay, that's, the, that's a big test. See, grace offerings, I had no intention of doing a giving message this morning, but grace offerings are supposed to be done out of grace and not affected by, by covetousness. It's, it's a matter of responding to what the Lord has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's where the response comes from. That, that's where it should be. So, not, not, not making an issue of money. Now, sometimes, I, I've been to a couple of places. I went to a couple of big conferences, big pastors' conferences, and <clears throat> they had some really good speakers. They had some really good messages. But, boy, you talk about pushing for offerings. They could absolutely push for offerings. They'd have a speaker speak for 30, 40 minutes, and then they would do an offering message for the next 20 and then that, that's kind of the kind of the way they worked. I heard of one pastor in town here who shall remain unnamed, who um, he he took three offerings in one service, <clears throat> and the uh, after the second one he came back and said, "You guys haven't given enough," and he passed the plate again. Okay, if I would have been at that church, I would have been back. I, I wouldn't. Have, that was that was ridiculous and foolish. To do that, uh, I've talked to people who've come to me and said, oh, um, "Yeah, I, I know that uh, that church. I used to go to church. I don't go to church anymore. This was a night watchman at a Holiday Inn I worked at during seminary, and he says, I don't go to church anymore." He said, "I used to go to church, and he was a deputy sheriff and stuff." And he said, "Then the offering plate had come by, and I'd put some money in. I'd put some cash in the offering plate." And it went by, and he said, I got a knock on the door one day from one of the deacons of the church. And he said, we've been watching you when the offering plate comes by and just wanted you to know that uh, you need to put some more money in the offering plate. (laughs) 
Good grief. Sometimes I'd like for the TV to explode. But <laughs> and I thought, the audacity <laughs> of someone that would remotely do that. And he said, I haven't been back to church since. Now, by making an issue out of money, I think people get in real deep trouble and real serious trouble. And that's one of the... One of the good things, of the many good things about Trinity Bible Church, we don't make issues of money around here. And I think that's pretty obvious and pretty evident back there. And we've got that basket back there. And, uh, you know, people do what they want to do and give what they want to give. We used to pass the basket. I don't have a problem with that because I don't find a verse anywhere that prohibits it that prohibits passing the basket for the offering. There's nothing that does it. So to say you can't pass the basket is just legalism. To say you have to pass the basket is legalism. So, I mean, it's not prescribed anywhere. So there it is. And you know the Lord has provided and provided for us well over all this time. And we don't make an issue of money. should not be made an issue. The same thing whenever, whenever materials are going. I go to grace conferences and that's all they talk about is grace but you can't find any free books there unless it's from Village Ministries. Now that's sad to say but that's the fact. So anyway don't make an issue out of money when you're doing the Lord's work the Lord's going to take care of you is the way that that I see the scripture. Now leaders Conduct, consider a leader's conduct that is worthy of imitation. From Hebrews 13, 7, says, Remember those who led you and spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, some leaders want to be imitated. Paul says, Be an imitator of me, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, just as I am of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Just as I am of Christ. He made it very clear, and especially in Romans 7, he was a mess. He, was, he had fought with sin, he fought with arrogance, he fought with all those things. And he says, be an imitator of me, because he was more Christ-like than most people of his day or who ever lived in the church age. But he says, the standard is Christ. That's where the comparison comes in. Uh, what would Jesus do is a question to ask in an old book. <clears throat> My utmost for his highest. What would Jesus do? An interesting book, but sadly full of a lot of legalisms that, that were added in there. But the question is, what would Jesus do in a set of circumstances? <clears throat> and here's a good one. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider testing to be joyful. I love that passage. And you know what? Whenever you start reading the New Testament, if you were to read it chronologically, <coughs> first book you're going to read is James. And you know what verse 2 says? <laughs> consider it all joy. That's our word, consider. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then let endurance have its perfect or mature result 
that you might be mature and complete and lacking nothing. Now you can actually pray that verse. Some people use Bible verses and they say, well, let's pray the Bible. And then they branch them totally out of context. And then they start praying them and naming it and claiming it and all this other stuff. How about saying, Father, see if this fits. Let me consider it all joy when I encounter various trials. That is a prayer in accordance with his will. Let me consider it all joy when I encounter various trials, knowing the testing of my faith produces endurance in me, and let this endurance have its mature results so I can be mature and complete and lacking nothing. The next verse, Lord, let me ask for wisdom when I need it. See, that's praying the Bible. You know the directive will of God, and you're asking the Lord to make that in you, make you that way. See, that's, that's an amazing blessing to be able to do that. Consider testing to be joyful. Why not pray for it? Why not pray for it? Because, Lord, I have trouble with that. All of us do from time to time. But that's a prayer he's going to answer. Now, lack of sacrifice or consideration for the Lord's sacrifice insults the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10.29 When we're uh, <clears throat> in various places in India... Uh, other places around the world and we're teaching and of course in the <clears throat> foundations books one and two both is the security of the believer and the arguments for that where it comes from biblically why you can't lose your salvation it's, it's all placed in there and we always try to open it up for a question and answer <clears throat> and whenever the, the questions start popping there is you see some pastor in the back going, and you know he's either got Hebrews 6.4 or he's got Hebrews 10.26. Okay? You know what he's getting ready to tell you. Well, Hebrews 10.26 <clears throat> says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. They think you've lost your salvation. They've been taught that from that verse since most of them became Christians because most of the people we talk to don't believe automatically in the assurance of their salvation and that's one of the first things we try to get across to them you want to build on a foundation that is based on grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and to do that you got to realize he's faithful even if you're not and so that's that's where we approach it and how we approach it but then they start with this. And what about this verse? Kind of like we've overlooked it somewhere in the course of our studies. And I, I like to respond, I'm glad you asked that question. Because now we can talk about context. And we go back to verse 1. And you start in verse 1 and you find out in context is the Levitical priest standing and offering sacrifices all day long. Okay? That's the immediate context of these passages. And then <clears throat> it says, Jesus came, offered one sacrifice for sin for all time. He sat down at the right hand of God. There is no more legitimate animal sacrifices anymore. Now, what did that mean to the Jews? Remote context. They thought that by offering animal sacrifices, their sins were paid for. 
And yet the Bible in the Old Testament says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay? Doesn't have the power. Lacks it. It's impossible. Stated. Samuel. Okay. So what are they trying to what are they trying to say? It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So <clears throat> we take them back to the Old Testament, remind them the Jews used animal sacrifices to think they didn't need a redeemer because they were redeemed by the blood of animal sacrifices. So he says, okay, guys, think about this. One who goes on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, <clears throat> then he um, has, I've lost it here, Hebrews 10:26. he no longer has a sacrifice for sins. Sacrifice for sins, in context, is the animal sacrifices of the sin and trespass offering that were offered under the Levitical offerings, the Mosaic Law. So he no longer has that because it's no longer legitimate. You can't play games with it anymore, my Jewish friends, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You can't play games with things anymore trying to forgive you of your sins. Verse 29 <clears throat> How much severe punishment do you think he'll deserve who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean, considered unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? He's telling them that as believers they can face discipline. They can face discipline as believers. That's something that people forget at times, they think, well, if I'm saved forevermore and I can't lose my salvation, why should I worry about sin? <clears throat> I just went back through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and got them up on the Internet. And that's about Gnosticism. Gnosticism, that means they're smart people, right? This is the, this is the Christian intelligentsia that emerged and said, well, if he paid for all the sins and he took away for all the sins, then it doesn't matter anymore what I do. There's no such thing as sin. Why did John was inspired to write 1 John? Go to chapter 2 of 1 John. My little children, I'm writing you these things that you may not sin. We still sin. What do we do when we sin? 1 John 1, 9. We confess those sins. He told us what we do, but the Gnostics didn't believe we sinned anymore. So if you don't sin anymore, you don't need to confess your sins anymore. Your fellowship with God is damaged. Even though you're a believer in Christ, you can't get out of his hand, but you're not going to enjoy anything about him. And that's what, he's, that's what he's trying to get across. That's what the writer of Hebrews does here. That John actually expands on these passages and, <clears throat> and uh, talks about, he says, you have considered as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and you've insulted the spirit of grace. Whoa. So, lack of consideration for the Lord's sacrifice insults the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, some consider pleasure to be more important <clears throat> than the things of God. And they're headed for destruction. This is Second Peter 2. This is where we will be going in our studies. <clears throat> Excuse me. Second Peter two twelve. 
there have been people like this all through history that Peter is going to write about. But he's talking in particular about the last days. There will be those that arrive, false teachers, even denying the master that bought them. That's where he started back in verse 1 of that chapter. Verse 12. These like unreasoning animals. Are dogs people too? No. (laughs) Not according to the Bible, but not a lot of people care about that anymore, do they? Are dogs people too? Yeah, they're nice, cute, cuddly and everything. And God made dogs so a man would always have a friend that loved him no matter what. Then he made cats. Put us in our place. But like unreasoning animals. Okay. <clears throat> Born as creatures of instinct. To be captured and killed. They have a programming put in them by the creator. And it is a program about survival and how that they are to how, how they are to gather food and whether they hunt all night or hunt all day or what what do they do? Reviling where they have no knowledge. Will in the destruction of these creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Now, verse 13, they consider it. That word count in the New American Standard, they consider, that's our word, it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, usually in past history and the way people viewed it, well, if you're going to get out and get in trouble, you do it at night. Not as many people see you. uh, Get away with a whole lot more. Okay, you do your stuff at night. Now, he says, they're wide open with it. We never run into that anymore, do we? Where people are just wide open with their sinful behavior and the flagrant immorality. He says, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes. Reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. So, some consider pleasure more important than the things of God. And if that's the case all of their life, they're headed for destruction. They can actually be headed for destruction in time. In time. Because when believers can face, 1 John 5 writes about this, a sin unto death. There's a sin not leading to death. And he said, (laughs) told the believers... Don't pray that somebody else has the sin unto death, okay? Don't pray that God will get somebody with the sin unto death. Don't do that. But there's a sin not leading to death. He said, you leave that in God's hands. It's up to him. He's the ultimate judge. Don't start praying for stuff like that. But if it goes on long enough, with God's divine timing, his amazing plan, and everything else factored into his decision, he can take people out. With a sin unto death. And that's what he does from time to time. Now verse 14. Here he says knowing. And this is oida. The word means to know from experience. He says knowing that the laying aside. Of my earthly dwelling is imminent. The laying aside here is apothesis. And it literally is a placing away from. Comes from tithami. And that means to place or set something. Apo means away from. 
So if I were to be here and take two steps over there, I would be apothesis. I would have taken taken steps away from. He says, I'm knowing in my the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, and this is skenoma. Uh, <coughs> skene is a word for tent or tabernacle. And you put an M-A ending on it, means the result of a tent or tabernacle. And he's talking about his human body here. So Peter's making it very clear he's talking about that. He says this eminent. Now this is not the the normal word that you find that, that says uh, the Lord is near, the Lord will come quickly. Those This is the word tekinos. It is the word eminent. It is used two times only. 2 Peter 2.1 is the other place that it is that it is used. It's a word that means impending. So Peter, when he writes this, he knows his death is close. It's not somewhere down the line. He knows his death is, is close. He says, As also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. This is de lao. When you see the word made clear and some of those words to manifest and all that... They can bring those, they, they translate that from various words and, and sometimes they don't pay attention to what the individual word says. This word, de lao, means literally to make plain, to signify something or to declare it. It's used in 1 Peter 1.11 of the things that are signified or declared by the Old Testament prophets. Now this word denotes the spiritual significance of historical realities. And it indicates to become mentally clear. So to Peter, he knew that he was getting ready to die physically. And he also knew what the Lord told him. So what did the Lord tell him? Well, Peter knew his death was impending. He was looking right at it. There's other words that, that look at without unnecessary delay. This is not it. And I believe that's why this was selected by the Holy Spirit. Now the Lord made it clear that Peter was going to undergo a martyr's death. John 21:18 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you all remember where this is? This is on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. The Lord had some fish ready for him. Peter jumped out of the boat, swam ashore, and there he is, and the Lord is in the process of restoring Peter after his massive failure of his, his three denials. And he says, When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old... Now see, he's telling Peter about his life. And he's also telling him he's not going to die next week. Because he wasn't old. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. And someone else will gird you. And bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, de lao, signifying, by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he'd spoken this, the Lord had spoken this, he said, follow me. Now, Peter, we found out, was crucified upside down after watching his wife crucified. So it was not a pleasant death. 
And here, what is this? Stretch out your hand. Somebody else is going to do that. You're going to go against your will. It's not going to be your choice to go to the cross, Peter, is what he's saying. You are going to die, and you're, you're going to die in a bad way from the world's perspective. From the world's perspective. But it would be a martyr's death because he would be taken where he didn't want to go. Now, <clears throat> the rapture could not have happened at least until Peter's death or he wouldn't have died. I have, I have um, had discussions with people, you can say arguments, over the imminency of the rapture. Because some believe that from the day of Pentecost on, the rapture was imminent at any point in time. And I've, I've always had trouble with that. Heard that all the way through seminary. Heard it from pastors. Got friends who believe that now with all their heart. And I think it's incorrect. I think it's incorrect because the rapture could not have happened until Peter died. And their response is, well, he could have died and been raptured. Okay. There's a whole lot more things that have to happen before the tribulation is ready to go. Unless you want to put in an unspecified dispensation and gap of time, which is what they've ended up doing. Now, <clears throat> Peter's death had to have happened. So that at least puts off the rapture after the day of Pentecost. It had become manifestly evident to Peter that the time of his death was quite near. Remember, Peter is an apostle. Peter is also a prophet. Peter is inspired to write scripture. He's writing scripture here. There are some other prophets still around. What did they say about this book? It's scripture. Spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So as a result, when other prophets saw what Peter had written, they went, Scripture stamp of approval. That's how it was approved in the early church. And so <clears throat> he knew that the time of his death was, was quite near. Some things are made evident to us. <clears throat> They're made evident to us according to God's timing. When things are going to happen, how do things become perfectly clear? How do they signify other things, if you will? 1 Peter 1.10 says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, signifying, this is our word, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So things get made evident according to God's timing. Now, sometimes people forget that, and they end up developing a hermeneutic that, that doesn't realize that and factor that in. Uh, Daniel said, what does this mean? And he said, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. It is for the time of the end. Many will come and go. Knowledge will increase on the earth. Then it will be known what this prophecy means. That's what was told to Daniel in chapter 12. So that is the way that the Lord does it as he reveals it progressively when he's ready to unveil it and reveal it. So that's how we can see that there's some things right now that, that are becoming very clear that wouldn't have been clear a hundred years ago that are providing for a literal fulfillment. 
And I could go down a rabbit trail here, but I'm not going to do it. There's plenty of things to illustrate that. At times, they're revealed by our own inherent traits, just by who we are, what we are, and sometimes things become evident as to who they are. Matthew 26, 73 is an example of this. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for the way you talk gives you away. It reveals you. He was from Galilee. Yeah, they spoke with a little bit different accent. And it's kind of like, <laughs> I, I, I find accents fascinating. When I sold Bible books door to door in Virginia, southwest Virginia, I came back sounding like a southwest Virginian. The next year we went to North Carolina. And North Carolina, I could, I, if you give me a little bit, I can get right back into the accent. Got good friends from Georgia. You can pick up a Georgia accent just like that. It's just that fast. You might mistake it for Mississippi. But I mean, there you got some very definite accents. So it's kind of like he, <laughs> Peter opened his mouth. And he said, you're from Galilee. <laughs> kind of like I have friends from Wisconsin. I can almost pick up a Wisconsin accent at times. Just a little different pronunciation in the words that, that are there. Times our own inherent traits make things uh, uh, very clear to us. At times, by the scripture itself. Now, that's the way it really should be, isn't it? Galatians 3.11. That no one is justified by law before God is evident. It's clear. It's manifest. You could take any of the words that are used in the New Testament for taking the veil off or anything like that, and you could have substituted them in here. It says it's, it's evident. It's really clear. For the righteous man shall live by faith. That's what it's about. <clears throat> At times, we get uh, fixed with logical thought. <coughs> he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is evident that he accepted the one who put all things in subjection to him. So since the Lord is the highest of high, he's still not higher than the Father. It's what this is saying. There's some things that that are evident. He, the, Dad's the boss. That's a neat way to be. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, did they have an election? Back in eternity past, before any of us came into existence, they always knew about us. They always knew about these things. Did they have some election in the making of the divine decrees and all this? And, I'll be the Father. I'll be the Son. I think that's foolish to think about. It's what I think about. It was just very clear to all three of them will manifest in the form of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how we'll do it. And what's so amazing, because you can track every word through the Old Testament. I challenge you to do it because you'll learn a lot about the Old Testament if you do. Try to separate Yahweh and Elohim. Yeah, because I thought Yahweh's got to be the son. This is a young seminary student. Elohim's got to be the father. Ruach's got to be the Holy Spirit. That's who it's got to be. And then do a word study of all the 10,000 times each one of those words is used. And what you're going to find out is there's an overlap. There is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a consistent overlap because we have one God. 
and they are manifested in three ways. Now, it's hard to think, hard to understand, hard to grasp. One of these days we'll fully understand it because we've been promised that. But for right now, it's still kind of wrap your head around this. If you ever get to the answer to the question, please share it and write a book. Because somebody, well, there'll be a lot of people want to want to know. At times, there's just clear explanation. Hebrews 12, 26. Clear explanation. This is this is signifying. Just listen to the and his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised. When did he shake the earth? Well, he shook it at at Mount Sinai. He's shaken the earth multiple times, but the earth. Now he is promised, saying, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now that's a big statement. And this expression. Yet once more, denotes, evidences, signifies, that's our word, the removing of those things that can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. What can't be shaken? Your salvation and relationship with the Lord God Almighty. But everything else that can shake. Have you ever felt the ground shake under your feet? It's going to be removed. One of these days this firm foundation is going to be solid. Totally solid. Will there be earthquakes in heaven? No. (laughs) He says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we offer up to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Second Peter 3 will write more about it. One of these days, he's going to destroy the entire heavens and the earth. One of these days, he's going to roll up the heavens like a mantle, like an old coat. Now, can you imagine even looking up into the sky and seeing that happen? It's, it's hard to even picture in your mind's eye, but it's going to be like, here are the heavens and all of its vastness and its trillions and trillions of light years, and it's going to be like it's starting to be rolled up. Do you think maybe some of the people who think they have power <laughs> on this planet might be humble just a little bit? That's what power is. Anything we've got here is just a smattering of stuff that uh, the devil uses to make us arrogant. One day all things are going to be evident. I like this. For us, (coughs) judgment seat of Christ. (coughs) 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. And it's talking about us at the Bama seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, believers at the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, if any man builds upon the foundation... Foundation's Christ. And if you build on it with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. Very clear. Manifest. For the day will show it. Because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Interesting thing about precious stones, like 
aquamarine rubies and things they're enhanced with fire so the things we know as precious stones right now after they go through the fire of the Lord they're going to have a brilliance we couldn't even imagine that's that's what he does gold silver and precious stones and then it says some people have all wood hay and stubble and it's going to go <coughs> yet they shall be saved so as by fire if that's not a picture of the security of the believer I don't know what is let's pray Father thank you for this day once again your mercy love your grace all your blessings all your tests and Father, let us always learn to consider it all joy when we encounter these tests because you get a reason for it. Father, may we accept that reason. May we be changed and may the, you, the potter, uh, mold the clay. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.